unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. It's our first show of 2021. Great to be back with you on the JAS podcast coming up on today's show. We'll do a college football postmortem. Renny Angolia of ESPN's college football coverage will be here to uh, break down this football season that uh, somehow we did get it in. And Alabama as the national champion once again. What a shocker. Who knew? <laughs> Renny is standing by in the virtual green room. He will join us in just a few moments. How did you like NFL Super Wild Card Weekend? Woo! Good stuff. Three playoff games each day, Saturday and Sunday. Again, I'm generally not a fan of expanding the playoffs and putting more teams in, but uh, it was interesting, and you got some good games. Division rivals taking battle, and Cleveland finally gets a playoff win for the first time in forever. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers move on. Taylor Henneke is a big story in Washington, D.C., <laughs> the unheralded quarterback. And again, showing the value of spring football, a guy who got some reps and meaningful playing time. You know, they don't develop quarterbacks like they used to. They pretty much want you to start straight out of college. Now, there are more similarities between offenses between the college and pro game than there used to be back in the day, but... You know, it used to be you drafted your quarterback, and he he was a he was a student for three four years. You know, Aaron Rodgers had to sit behind Brett Favre for quite a while. So there you go. And interestingly enough, and I do have to go circle back a little bit. Speaking of the Washington football team, you know, you got to look at uh, the New York Giants. I didn't get a chance to talk about this because of the time off I've had between just before Christmas and now. But the Giants were doing the boo-hoo. The Eagles didn't try hard enough. You know, using a third-string practice squad quarterback instead of letting Jalen Hurts finish the game. Look, New York got nothing to cry, cry. You know, you want to be in the playoffs, win more games. A 6-10 and 10 team has no right to bitch <laughs> in this situation. When you get in the playoffs, win more games. You are in a crappy division, and you're one of the crap teams. <laughs> Nothing else could be said about that. Meanwhile, the divisional playoffs will uh, get underway this weekend. And how about this? Three of the four games, the opponents in those games did not play during the regular season. So these will be fresh looks. And uh, you won't have any history to go back and look at between the two clubs. The only repeat in that is Tampa and New Orleans. Saints won both meetings during the regular season. And how about Tom Brady? (laughs) Gotta love it. He's got a sense of humor. Putting out that uh, picture of the game being on the History Channel with him and an old man beard and Drew Brees with his old man reader glasses. <laughs> Gotta say, that's very, very good stuff. 
All right, it's time to put a capper on the college football season. And joining us to do that now is our pleasure to welcome back to the program from ESPN, Rennie and Goya. Rennie, thanks so much for being back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. It is great to have you. And uh, here we are, you know, back around summertime, a lot of folks thought college football might not even get played at all. But here we are, the vast majority of the schedule gets in despite all sorts of uh, challenges with COVID and things of that nature. And uh, we made it to the finish line. Yeah, you know, listen, you know, I was optimistic back then. There was a lot of negativity. And listen, I get it. We went through something that no one's ever gone through before. And, and again, I just think back then, you know, if you just logically looked at it, the players, the student athletes were, were safer playing with their medical staffs and their protocols. And as it turns out, as the season uh, finishes up, that's what happened. The players were safer. Um, I don't think there was any documented cases of a player uh, getting sick to the to the point where they needed to be hospitalized. And, yeah, we missed some games. A lot of that was because of contact tracing. But by and large, um, where we were as a country with what was going on with COVID, I would call the college football season a raging success. Yeah, I would say so. And you look at the fact that, you know, not just the players, the coaches, training people, medical staffs, administrations, a lot of people had to pull together for that. They sure did. I mean, I tell you what, Jeff, I think if the Big Ten and Pac-12 had it do over again, they would have stayed the original course that they had. Um, you know, that, that stopping and canceling and then coming back late, I think, really hurt them, although Ohio State still got into the championship game. But I give a lot of credit. Obviously, the credit goes to the players, coaches, and the players' families, really, for the sacrifices they made throughout this year to get the season in. But really, uh, you give credit to the SEC, ACC, and Big 12, who really uh, held held together, stayed the course, and, and got it done. And then, you know, other conferences followed suit or stayed the course as well, like the American and Sunbelt and so forth. So, uh, listen, kudos to everybody to pull together and get this thing done. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, let's talk about now the uh, the championship game from last night. Alabama wins in rather convincing fashion, 52-24. to And I don't think there was really any doubt at all during the course of the season that Alabama was the best team in college football. No, I mean, I would, I would agree with that. And I think Nick Saban had said it early in the year, too. He believed the team that would come out on top at the end would be the team that really navigates this COVID issue all year long and they were able to do it a lot of teams did but you know they were even when you when you say Alabama football I was just uh, doing a radio show the other day when you say Alabama football really the first thing that pops in your head at least for me is dominant defense right and this year and the last couple of years really that narrative's kind of been reversed I mean that offense this year was more explosive than I've ever seen uh, before in my lifetime at Alabama, and in one of the most explosive offenses probably of all time. I mean, think about it. Three of the top five finalists for the Heisman Trophy were on that Alabama offense, and, of course, the winner, Devontae Smith. And, oh, by the way, when the season started, those three players weren't even the best offensive player on the team. It was Jalen Waddell. So it's incredible, uh, you know, how good Alabama was offensively. And then I think the defense got better as the year went on. That Ole Miss game taught them a lot. And uh, they did what they needed to do. Just a dominant performance from start to finish, not only in the game, but in the season uh, for the Crimson Tide. 
And you mentioned the three great players that they have. And, and you know, think about that. You know, it's very rare that you get that kind of like uh, triplets effect in college football. Uh, no, you, you don't. And, and that's what makes sense. Someone asked me why Alabama is so good and why, you know, Clemson, Ohio State. It's, it's recruiting. It really is. I read something in the beginning of the year. Out of the 85 scholarship players on Alabama, I think 83 of them, and I could be off a little bit, but 83 of them were rated four-star or better. And so what that does is it, it allows teams like Alabama, you can miss on players where other schools can't because they just don't have the volume of top-notch players. When you're at an Alabama, a Clemson, a Texas A&M, an Ohio State, you can miss on players um, although they don't miss on very many, so their depth is unbelievable. You look at those three players, and let's give Mac Jones a lot of credit. In the day and age that we live in, where quarterbacks especially do not want to be backups, they want to transfer, they get in the portal, graduate transfer, they want to go to another school. Mac Jones came in with Tua. He was a scout team quarterback. He paid his dues, and now he's a national championship quarterback. He sets a record, 464 yards, five touchdowns in a championship game. He's going to get drafted. He's going to get a real good chance in the NFL. I, you know, Based on what I see from him, he'll play in the NFL. Um, and so kudos to him for just hanging in there and, and working each and every day to get better, not just running away from adversity. And so, uh, yeah, it's a team that was loaded and deserved to win the championship. Let's talk about the Heisman Trophy winner, Devontae Smith. I mean, good gracious. Uh, what a first half he put up last night to be the MVP of the game. And uh, what a tremendous season he's had. And uh, he certainly is going to uh, uh, be on uh, the, the draft board very, very high. Yeah, I mean, the, the NFL teams are going to do their due diligence. But just, you know, looking at it, the quick snapshot as the season ended, um, you know, you know, Trevor Lawrence is going one to Jacksonville. I mean, that's... That's a foregone conclusion. But I tell you what, the New York Jets may take Devontae Smith, too. They got Sam Donald. They got a great uh, left tackle last year from Louisville. So you're building pieces offensively. But there's no doubt Devontae Smith uh, is going to be a top five, six draft pick uh, in the NFL draft. And it's crazy because in the beginning of the year, again, I mentioned it, Jalen Waddle was getting all – the uh, recognition, but Devontae Smith, I mean, since his true freshman year where he caught the, the winning touchdown pass uh, against Georgia in the national championship, you know, really the knock on Devontae Smith is his size, he's a little small, but I tell you what, he plays awful big, doesn't he? And he can just, <laughs> he can do a variety of things. Obviously, he's a great return, turn man, especially in, in punt returner, but he can catch those quick passes out of the out of the slot, uh, you know, the quick outs. He can go downfield. He runs great routes. He's got great speed, and he's got great hands. So uh, he's going he's gonna to be a very good player in the NFL. And where did you fall on Ohio State being in the college football playoff with their, with their reduced schedule? So, again, I don't blame Ohio State. Um, I blame their conference. I think the conference mismanaged it uh, incredibly. Uh, it was very poor on their part. Uh, what I will say, and I told someone this the other day, people need to remember – the College Football Playoff Committee has one task. They are challenged with one thing, and that is to put the best four teams in. Now, as a college football, if you're on that committee, you can use any metric you want. They give them a million metrics to use. But at the end of the day, they are to put the four best teams in, not the four most deserving teams, because there's always, you know, as you look at the season, how it develops, there's always 
probably teams more deserving, but they are tasked with the four best teams. And do I think they got the four best teams in? I do. Ohio State was one of the best four teams. Now, there was no caveat uh, for the college football playoff committee on how many games a team had to play. So they got in with uh, six games, I think seven after, you know, no, it was six after they played their their conference championship. So, you know, they put the four best in. We can argue uh, that there was a competitive advantage playing less games. Uh, That's a good argument to have. But, you know, the committee got it right in terms of the four best teams. And of course, they uh, got finally got some revenge on Clemson uh, in the semifinals. And you know, I, I know teams are already motivated to play at this stage, but uh, did Dabo Sweeney really need to pour gas on that fire? <laughs> no, and I think if he had it to do over again, he probably wouldn't have ranked them eleventh. Because I, I do think things like that motivates players and motivates uh, coaching staffs and teams. And so, out of the whole, out of out of the two playoff games. And the championship game, that was the most surprising to me, what Ohio State did to Clemson. Um, and they did. They, they played a complete game. Um, and I thought if they came in and played that well against Ohio State, I mean, excuse me, against Alabama, if Ohio State played that well against Alabama, it'd be a little tighter uh, in the championship game. But it just wasn't to be. I think Alabama was too good top to bottom. And then once Sermon went out, the first play of the game, you know, he had, he had such a great season. Uh, that was a little deflating, and I, I think it's safe to say uh, Justin Fields was not 100%. Uh, I will say this, even if he was 100%, I think Bama still wins that game, but uh, yeah, they just they just couldn't get it done. And uh, But, uh, you know, again, we got this year in, and uh, it was a good playoff. Just happy we got it done. What are your thoughts on Notre Dame? You know, they, they have, have been able to get to, you know, the playoff status, but they haven't had the results to show for it when they get there. Yeah, and again, it, it comes down to recruiting. And for them specifically, and uh, and Brian Kelly said as much, and other quote-unquote experts have said it, uh, interior, and, and I'm, I'm an old-school guy, Jeff. I believe you do build your teams from the inside out. And what I mean from that, you recruit very good offensive linemen and defensive linemen, and then you build your team out. Um, I don't care if you're spread offense, uh, old-style run-and-shoot. Uh, you, you build your teams from the inside out. With that said... You better go get skilled players once you get to the outside. And that's kind of what they were lacking, uh, that team speed, the multiple skill players on the outside, the game breakers, if you will. And, I, and again, that's where the, the Alabamas, uh, the Ohio States, the Clemsons have an advantage because they have so much speed on the outside, so many game breakers. And, again, it's just recruiting. It's stockpiling those players. So I think – but I think Notre Dame is in a really good position. Brian Kelly's right. They're not going anywhere. They're always going to be in the mix. They might always not make the playoff every year, but they're always going to be in the mix. So if they can recruit a few more skill players and get some of that speed in, again, it's the old adage, speed kills, and it does. Um, they're going to be in, in the conversation each and every year. You know, there were some thoughts that, you know, from from folks that were thinking, okay, well, you know, in this COVID year, would it be a a good opportunity to expand the playoff? Are you hearing anything at all about potentially the playoff getting expanded or are we still going to be running the same path? You know, I'm not hearing anything, but I am in the camp now that it it needs to be expanded. You know, I really am. I think uh, I think eight. It would be the, the logical number. And, and listen, it's no secret what they're trying to do. They're trying to preserve the bowl games, give them, you know, their due still. 
without taking away from it and have the playoff. And that's why it's a playoff, not playoffs, and it's two games. But I think eight is the, the number, and what you do, it's very simple. you got five Power Five conferences. Every Power Five champion gets in, right? That puts so much weight on the conference all year long in that conference championship. Um, the group of the highest ranked group of five team, which now gets a New Year's Six bowl game, you give them an automatic to the playoffs. And then you have two at largest. So the committee still is doing something. They're still putting some teams in. They're still ranking the highest group of five. So you're not doing away with the committee. And then what I would do as well, I think that first round game, the top four seeds will play a home game. That gives them another home gate. Um, and then those losers of those 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 four teams that will lose to begin with, I say you go ahead and send them to a bowl anyway. They can still go to a bowl because one thing we've showed this year is you can schedule bowl games pretty quick, pretty late, if you will, within seven, eight, nine, ten days. You don't have to wait 23, 24, 25 days to play a bowl game, which is normally what we do. You can get it in a little quicker. Um, and that preserves the bowls, and then, then you're down to your four after eight, and then you do your two semis like you do, and then the championship game. So it, it can be done. Um, I think smart people need to get in a room and figure it out, and uh, hopefully they will. And do you think that's a byproduct, too, that, you know, because, you know, we know Alabama and Clemson and Ohio State are going to be in that mix each and every year. Do you think there's fatigue going on with the, uh, the, with the audience out there? I do. Well, so the number, uh, you probably saw this, I think the number last night was 18 million in all of ESPN's, uh, you know, the, the main broadcast and all their other ones they had. And uh, so that was down uh, a lot. And I do. I think it's fatigue of uh, just seeing kind of the same teams. Now, listen, if you go to A, we're going to have those same teams, which is great, but we're going to have a mix of some other ones. And it's football. So although you could play in Alabama a hundred times, they're going to beat you 99. You still have, there's always a chance you could lose because it's football, right? So just putting a Coastal Carolina in or a Cincinnati or a UCF. It's going to give some excitement, especially for that fan base. I think it's good for college football. And inevitably, you're going to get an upset. You're not going to get as many upsets as you do in the NCAA basketball tournament. But you will get an upset here or there. Um, and I just think it's, it's, it's exciting. It's good for college football. It's good for those fan bases. And so that's why I think ultimately it has to be done. And do you think they need to separate themselves a little bit from NFL Wildcard Weekend? I heard uh, Gary Danielson say yesterday he thinks they should play on Thursday night uh, after the Wildcard Weekend. What do you think about that? Yeah, and if you Mark Daniels said it on his show here in Orlando as well, he asked me that exact same question. Yeah, so that's the interesting thing. So, uh, you know, when you're my age, I mean, you you think New Year's Day, right, is, is the creme de la creme of college football. And he was mentioning that, Boy, if the championship game could be on that day, it would culminate the season. That would be phenomenal. And I I agree with them. I just don't know if you can fit everything in, um, you know, with the conference championship games. And you got to give guys bye weeks and so forth and so on. Now, you may be able to cram it in there. And I I do think, uh, you know, if you could separate yourself from which is what is now super wild card weekend, I think you're better off. So, and again, I think this year was kind of an outlier. It was a one-off. So I think next year and years to come, if they can kind of separate themselves, if possible, from the NFL, I think they'll definitely do that. 
You know, and uh, and I will admit to being a hypocrite on this. I say there are too many bowl games, but I do end up watching just about every one of them. Um, And you can't say that this year. You know, we had a lot of uh, bowl game cancellations. Um, How how difficult do you think that was for 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 teams that you know some teams just opted out altogether, and bowl games ended up being canceled? It was a very difficult situation. Well, it was difficult. There's no doubt about it. But look at look at. You know the positive of it. A team like Army that went nine and two, and they were their game got can they kept their game got canceled, and and these are kids that they're seniors in six months. They're going to be overseas protecting our freedoms. They just wanted to play one more game, so I'm glad they were able to get them one in. Listen, it, it was a tough year, and you know, so I, I'm I'm kind of I'm different, obviously, because I love every bowl game, and, and obviously I'm a broadcaster, so more bowl games means more work for me. So um, there's no secret there. But again, I, I will tell you, like, so I did the New Mexico Bowl this year, which was in Texas, right? So that's very, very 2020 of the New Mexico <laughs> Bowl being in Texas because of COVID issues. Um, and that was Christmas Eve. And I looked at the number. We had 2 million viewers. So, I mean, 2 million viewers on a, on Christmas Eve afternoon for Hawaii-Houston. I mean, that, that's why you have these bowl games because people still watch them. Christmas Day, the Camellia Bowl, um, which was, I believe, Buffalo, I want to say Buffalo, Eastern Michigan. I could No, it wasn't Buffalo, but I know Buffalo was in that game. Um, they had 2.1 million. So you get eyes on bowl games. So that's why they're not going to go away. It's just um, trying to make the playoff uh, more inclusive for schools and then still preserving those bowl games as we go forward. Yeah, and of course, I was one of your uh, one of your viewers on uh, Christmas Eve <laughs> because, because hey, football's on. You know that's a that's, that's, that's a that's a great thing. Um, wanted to get your thoughts on you know Cincinnati was the the group of five New Year six participant. They gave Georgia a heck of a football game. Uh, you know, I I had stated that their defense was you know power five worthy, and that would allow them to compete. And uh, they nearly pulled off the upset. I think they uh, got a little bit uh, careless managing the clock towards the end of the game. What were your thoughts on the Bearcats' performance against the Bulldogs? Well, and, and it is. And I think I, I haven't seen any quotes from Luke, uh, from Luke Fickle. I haven't looked them up. But I know if you ask him, he will say they mismanaged the clock at the end of the game. They should have won that game. Um, but you're, you're spot on. Uh, they had a great defense. And Marcus Freeman, one of the great young defensive coordinators, in the country now, of course, moved on to Notre Dame. So uh, that's a big, big job for him, big jump, and he's going to do wonders there. Um, but Cincinnati had a very solid team. I've done a ton of Cincinnati games over the past three or four years. Uh, I remember doing Desmond Ritter as a freshman, watching him progress. Um, so you're right, and they, they could have and probably should have beaten Georgia. Unfortunately for Cincinnati, what hurt the group of five this year is and for the schools in the American, they didn't have any non-conference games, right? So they really had nothing. The committee had nothing to gauge them against. But let's be honest, what we've just been talking about, the college football playoff is just, it's not set up for the group of five. It just isn't. And so look at it. Cincinnati had a really high ranking when the first uh, college football playoff poll came out. But then what happened? You know, the Big Ten, the Pac-12, all these other schools start playing. And then all of a sudden, Cincinnati gets starts getting dropped in the poll without even losing, right? And then it happened to Coastal Carolina as well. So, again, to say, you know, someone had mentioned, well, you know, Cincinnati had a great season, so they're going to be ranked high in the preseason next year, which is true. They will. So that's going to give them a closer shot to getting in the playoff again. Um, 
if it stays at four, which it is next year, obviously, um, if you're a group of five team, and I don't know what Cincy's schedule is next year, but you have to run the table in your conference and your and your non-conferences, and those non-conferences better have at least two games over Power Five school. I think they do play a couple Power Fives next year, um, but you, that's what you have to do. So you know, if you take if you take that 2017 UCF team that beat Auburn in in the uh, in the Peach Bowl um, that went undefeated. And you put them in the world of college football now, because I do believe the group of five is getting more respect. And a lot of it is because of what UCF uh, did and then what Boise did before them. But if you take that 2017 team and you put them in a normal year like next year and they do what they did, I think they have a legitimate shot of getting in. But again, it, it, I, I just think the committee just doesn't look favorably at the group of five, unfortunately. Yeah, that is unfortunate indeed. And by the way, Cincinnati will play uh, Notre Dame next year. I do know that for sure. So, so the Brian Kelly Bowl. <laughs> so that will be a that will be a definitely a, a, an opportunity for uh, the Bearcats there. Um, you know, in talking about group of five teams, um, Coastal Carolina. You know, we talked about them last time you were on the show, and yeah. uh, and uh, you know they ended up uh, having that uh, basically the uh, the pickup game with BYU. Uh, yeah. they, they ended up being one of the best games of the season, and I give BYU a lot of credit because you know they could they could have just you know waited out a week and and kept their record unblemished, but uh, but they took on the challenge, and I and and what a great game that was. Yeah, I don't think people can appreciate how hard it is for a team to basically find out Wednesday night uh, into Thursday uh, who they're playing. And then you're playing a team that's really good this year and, oh, by the way, runs a spread option attack with triple in it. (laughs) Very, very hard to defend when you're preparing for it an entire week, um, let alone, you know, two days. And to, to go across the country like that and play that game, uh, Kalani Sataki, the head coach in that BYU program, I give them a, a ton of credit. And they almost pulled off the win, but Coso was too good um, to, for them to let that happen. But, yeah, you're right. Give them a, a lot of credit for doing that. And, uh, and that's what you had to do this year. I love it. And then speaking of Coastal, you know, we talk about their year. They get knocked off against Liberty in the Cure Bowl here in Orlando. And Liberty was another – and you can call them a group of five that's an independent that kind of flew under the radar that beat two of three ACC teams and should have been 3-0. and They should have beat North Carolina State, had a tremendous year. But just getting back to Coastal again, it kind of blows my mind. You think the quote-unquote experts before the season started not only ranked Coastal last in their division of the Sun Belt, but they ranked them dead last in points if you, if you put in both divisions. They had... Louisiana Monroe ranked ahead of Coastal. They didn't win a game this year, so it just goes to show you. And Coastal goes on to, to win the Sun Belt, so that's why I love football. Right? You got to play the game. It doesn't matter what the quote unquote experts say. Yeah, and then of course BYU ends up, uh, you know, getting over it and uh, beating UCF out of handily in the Boca Raton Bowl. And I wanted to talk about the Knights a little bit there too, because. Uh, you know, that was an interesting game because not only did, uh, you know, they had their defensive problems, which they had throughout the course of the season, but offensively they did not look good. And one thing that kind of stabbed me was that was the first game Dylan Gabriel did not have Mackenzie Milton on the sideline. Yeah, and I also think, Jeff, uh, you know, and I haven't watched uh, as much UCF this year as I normally do just because it was a crazy year. Um, but, but that game in Boca against BYU, the one thing I noticed was, 
um, too many drop passes from wide receivers. I think when when you when you have a defense, and it's it, you, you mentioned it, it's uh, it's no secret the UCF defense struggled tremendously getting off the field. Um, so when your defense is going to give up points, your offense, you know, it better be that track meet back and forth. Your offense needs to score points, and usually the UCF offense does. And so too many drops against BYU, and then obviously the, the defense couldn't stop anyone. And then in the season, a little bit that I saw, you know, the, the Memphis game, you cannot score 50 points as an offense and lose a game. You just can't do that. I mean, mm-hmm. that's on the defense. You can you can blame your field goal kicker all you want. Uh, it's not the field goal kicker's fault. It, that's that's squarely on the defense when you score 50 points and you lose a ball game. Um, I thought UCF had Cincinnati beat. I thought, again, there was a couple drops in that game that would have kept drives alive offensively where I think uh, UCF probably could have went down and scored and ultimately won that game. So, yeah, uh, defense first and foremost is what – uh, UCF has to do and uh, next year to shore things up. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, and do you feel like it's kind of a watershed year for Josh Heupel? I mean, they've they've kind of you know, and again, we probably should not be going crazy about a team losing three or four times during a season, but uh, you know. I think people want to see UCF contending for the New Year's Six every year now that they've had a taste of it, and right or wrong, that expectation is there. Uh, do you think it's kind of a watershed year for Josh Heupel? Well, if you listen to the fans, it is, right? And I, listen, I love it. When when teams have success, fan bases get spoiled. And I get it. I understand it. So and you mentioned it. you know. And, but the, you know, the issue that Josh Heupel walked into is he, he walks into a, a team that, that Scott Frost got going in the right direction, undefeated team. He takes his players, they go undefeated, and then they, you know, they lose a game. And now you know, you're kind of steadily, I don't want to say in a decline, but you're losing a few games that you didn't lose before. Um, so the pressure gets on you. Listen, that's why these coaches make the big bucks that they do. They, they got to suck up this pressure and they got to win games. And and so I think the, the fan base at UCF has become accustomed to UCF being a top group of five program, um, trying to be in the discussion with the power five. So, yeah, uh, the pressure's on. Um, but And I think it's also on Randy Shannon as well, right, defensively, because, you know, the one thing, you know, the few UCF games I've done, it's one thing that's quite evident. I mean, Josh Heupel's the, the head coach, obviously, but he runs the offense, and I think he kind of, like, you know, lets Randy do what he needs to do defensively. Um, so, but everything ultimately comes back uh, on the shoulders of the head coach. So, uh, and, again, I was kind of on the, on the camp that I think, programs and coaches were going to kind of get a pass issue with COVID. <laughs> Ultimately, that didn't happen because look how many firings we've had. Yeah. Uh, it's been kind of nuts. So we'll see next year, and I, I think things will be hopefully back to normal or at least close to normal when college football rolls around next year. But, uh, but yeah, I think there's going to be a little pressure on Josh Heupel, no doubt about it. Yeah, I'm of the opinion that he probably needs to seed his play calling because I know, you know when you come into a program – Maybe call in the plays so you can kind of set the tone, set the example. I think he probably needs to spend a little more time being the head coach and less time being the offensive coordinator. What do you think about that thought? Yeah, and so that's that's a real interesting dynamic. So whenever I call games, um, that's one of the first things you see. Okay, does the head coach is he an offense is he an offensive guy or defensive guy by trade? Like how did he come up? And then when you find that out, you're like, okay, does he call the defense or does he call the offense? So uh, there's some good ones out there. Mike Norvell at Florida State, where Mackenzie Milton transferred to, 
Um, he calls the play. So there's a few of them out there. And you, you, you see that with this generation of coaches that more of them, when they came up through the ranks as offensive coordinators, they want to keep uh, doing that. But I agree with you. It can be hard managing the entire game and managing the entire team when you're so invested in calling the plays. And so that that's the – that's kind of that chess match that those coaches have to do. And some of them are a lot better at doing it than others. So, again, I think that's something to watch next year for Josh Heupel. And then one other bowl game I wanted to touch on, just because you know it was uh, it unfortunately made the headlines for all the wrong reasons, was the uh, Tulsa-Mississippi State game, which ended up having what we would call in the in the wrestling business a Pier 6 brawl after the <laughs> yeah. game. Um, you know, just a terrible situation. I think when a, a, clearly the referees did not get a hold of that game uh, to start with. And I kind of thought bowl games in general had a lot of extra chippiness this year. Uh, I saw a few other instances as well. Do you think that's kind of a byproduct of what the this year's frustrations have boiled over maybe? <laughs> yeah, 100%. I think it was just, you know, it was a, it was a tough season. Uh, stressful season for every player, every coach, every team, just with you know the testing and everything they did. So I do. I just think it was a boiling over point that this is the last game. We're done. Uh, we're not going to have to quarantine after this. We're not. You know, we're going to be able to get away. And so yeah, I do think it was a boiling point. Now it, it was disgusting what happened. You know, listen, fights happen. I get it. You know, the pushing, the shoving. You'll get the occasional kind of you know punch to a helmet, which is stupid because you're only going to hurt your own hand. But but once you're in a melee like that, and you're you're you know taking sucker punches at people that may have their helmet off, or you're you're kicking people and you're flying and kicking, that's where it just gets out of hand, and it's just it's just ridiculous and disgusting. And then you're going to go in a locker room and post stuff on social media and talk about it. That's where the coaches need to step up and the conferences need to step up. I haven't heard uh, what's going to happen. Uh, I, I know that the, the American. It, it, made a statement that they're going to look into it. I'm sure the SEC and Greg Sankey will as well. But I would expect, and I would be highly disappointed um, if there was underclassmen involved, which there was. Um, uh, I, I would be disappointed if there wasn't suspensions to start next year because they're, they're warranted with some of those players. If you uh, zero in and pinpoint that video, some of the things they did. And then again, as I said, the things they did off the field in the locker room, embarrassing for college football there needs to be some suspensions and one last thought um you know as you know basically you know this season was kind of a uh, a bonus year you know players can come back uh, for next season there's a lot of action in the transfer portal what are your thoughts on the transfer portal and how it's working and uh, what are your thoughts as to how it pertains to this season well i mean i like that players have the opportunity to transfer the problem is and, and this basically circle back to what we talked about in the beginning. Um, Mac Jones saying, no, I'm going to stick it out. I'm a backup. I'm going to wait my turn. Players don't want to do that anymore. They want instant gratification. So I, I don't know the exact number, Jeff, but I think there's like 400-plus players in the transfer portal. Well, I got news for them. You just mentioned it. Some seniors can come back. Now, not all seniors are going to come back. The coaches have to figure out, okay, who am I going to let come back and who am I going to have to say, sorry, you can't come back because i got to bring some freshmen. There's no room for anybody to transfer with that many people in the uh, in the transfer portal. There's just not – there's no spots for these players. So you're going to see a lot of players end up probably going FCS, going down. Um, 
to find a, a home to play. And so I just wish players would, one, take more time in the recruiting process to really make sure you pick the right school. Um, and then, and when you get there, understand that other players that are there are really good. And you're, it's just not going to be handed to you. You still have to go work and win a spot. And see, that's the difference. You know, when I grew up playing, you know, if you were, if your name was in the in the newspaper or you had your picture in the paper, that was like a big deal. Like I didn't, there was no internet, there was no nothing. Now, you know, these high school players are profiled and they're ranked and they're on TV every week, and they get coddled and they get to these schools, and all of a sudden they look up and they're fourth on the depth chart. They don't know how to handle it. So immediately they're like, well, I'm going to transfer because I'm better than this. When in reality, you got to put some effort in and work. And and so, yeah, I just think I like the, the ability that players have to transfer. I just think uh, there's too many players in the transfer portal. And ultimately, I don't for the majority of them, it's not it's ultimately not going to work out for them. Well, Rennie, it's been a pleasure having you back on. And, uh, you know, and before we know it, you know, the next college football season will be upon us. And hopefully it'll be more back to normal with fans and with tailgating, all the tasty things that make college football so great. <laughs> I agree. We need it. And, you know, and before we get to the fall, though, the F- FCS, there's a lot of FCS conferences that are going to start playing uh, in late February, early March. So hopefully... They can have a successful, you know, a smaller spring season. They're going to have the NCAAs. They move their playoffs from 24 teams back to 16, still with a championship in Frisco, Texas in May. So a a, uh, a truncated season for FCS so they can then turn around and and play again in the fall. So if you're a football fan, there's a lot of great stuff ahead of us. And then, of course, normality on top of it. Uh, 2021 was going to be a lot better for everybody. There's no doubt. All right, Rennie, thanks again. Appreciate you having being on with us. You got it. Have a great one. And we'll be right back to close out with a TV theme right after this. No Republicans, no Democrats, no team from Washington, no team with a star on the side of their head. We don't even talk about alpha and beta storms around here. And if you believe all of that, I have a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. Captain and Company in the morning, join me 9 to noon. Weekday mornings on OldSchool101.com, because class is always in session around here, virus or no virus. The theme from Charlie's Angels, an American crime drama that ran on ABC from September 1976 to June 1981. Five seasons and 115 episodes produced by Aaron Spelling. 
As it follows the crime-fighting adventures of three women working in a private detective agency in Los Angeles. Originally starring Kate Jackson as Sabrina Duncan, Farrah Fawcett Majors. She was married to the $6 million man Lee Majors at the time. As Jill Monroe. Jacqueline Smith as Kelly Garrett. Farrah would infamously leave the show after season one to be replaced by... One of my favorite all-time angels, Cheryl Ladd, is her little sis, Chris Monroe. Other cast changes, uh, Shelley Hack as Tiffany Wells took over when Kay Jackson departed. And then she was subsequently replaced by Tanya Roberts as Julia Roberts, Julie, Julie Rogers, rather, and uh, may Tanya Roberts rest in peace. And uh, David Doyle was the caretaker of the, the three ladies, as John Bosley, or just more or less talked to as Bosley, and the voice of Charlie, who was never seen but only heard, the great legendary actor John Forsythe of Dynasty Fay. Charlie's Angels, our TV theme for this week. And uh, once again, thanks to Randy Angolia of ESPN College Football for doing a breakdown and a postmortem of the just completed college football season. And uh, as we get underway in 2021, let's hope and pray that sports will continue to be part of our our mainstream and that things will get back to normal sooner than later and we'll have full stadiums and all that good stuff down the road. And with that, we are done here.